more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to another episode of Media and the End of the World, or shall we say this episode is Media and the End of Time. time. (laughs) Yes, friends, uh, in the glorious business of mergers and acquisitions, we may be seeing uh, that magazines are more valuable than any of us who stopped reading them a long time ago (laughs) think they are. Uh, I think this is going to be a fun episode. It's, it, has anything happened this week, Ralph? No, it's been pretty dead. Uh, there was uh, Turkey Day, and uh, then there was the recovery from Turkey Day, and kind of nothing in the world happened. Oh, there was a <laughs> missile. There was a North Korean missile, but outside of that, no, no, it's been actually another jaw-dropping, head-spinning, spine-cracking, uh, long series of revelations about things in the media world that we need to be concerned about. As I was kind of expressing the last time we all met together, it's probably a good idea to think about people you really like a lot and think that one of them is going to go down before too long. And what are you going to do at that point? How are you going to think about the world once they get caught up in one set of scandals or another? So, But before we get to that, yes, <laughs> let's talk about time. This is an interesting story. Uh, so the Meredith Corporation, which feels like it's been courting Time, Inc. for a while now. Uh, time, Inc. is the uh, corporation that controls magazines such as Time, Sports Illustrated, Fortune, and People. They've now been purchased by Meredith Corporation, uh, the owners of Family Circle, Better Homes and Gardens. Uh, all recipes, you know, because that that makes sense. All of those fitting together, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, they did it with an all cash transaction valued at nearly three billion dollars. Oh, but wait, the deal was made possible in part uh, by an infusion of six hundred and fifty million dollars from none other than the private equity uh, arm of Charles G. and David H. Koch. The Koch brothers are back. There, now the the there are two so there are two narratives that are possible here and this is where it gets kind of interesting on in one narrative the that it is really just a an investment arm a, a, a good purchase that was spotted by you know an investment arm of a a large corporation um, on the other hand it seems to create the possibility that there is going to be a, a backdoor of content change although they claim that's not going to happen they don't have a seat on the board um, so right now it's anybody's guess which one of those is going to happen. And Yeah, and I'd be curious. I, I look at this as a larger metaphor of sort of what we're seeing in the world, right? So we've got time, which is this uh, uh, historically big New York uh, I don't, don't want to say hard news, but certainly something that's focused on current events, uh, entertainment, celebrity culture, being sold to Des Moines, Iowa-based Meredith Corporation, known for uh, a little bit more lifestyle brand, backed by conservative Koch brothers. So, so Meredith also uh, owns some of these intellectual properties, Eat This, Not That, mm. the, uh, the book series, and then connected with that, Eating Well. 
Um, so that's kind of an important thing. Family fun, which I guess is probably a spun out version of family circle. Um, what I wanted to add that I think is interesting to think about is that our experience with some of these publications can sometimes be a, a complex relationship. So I have to tell a short Reader's Digest story. Okay. Reader's Digest is my... Is my... there such thing as a short Reader's <laughs> Digest story? Well, they do digest. They, there is such a thing as short Reader's Digest novelizations because they <laughs> trim everything back. But so a very long time ago when I was a little kid and my parents were subscribers to Reader's Digest because my parents, although they were very working class, they read a lot. And then I got an issue of Reader's Digest where Roger Ebert, the film critic from Chicago, wrote a piece that he had written, I think, probably for the Chicago Sun-Times and the Reader's Digest picked up. That is actually, it's a really good read, but it's, it's kind of got a really kind of disturbing message, or at least so I thought when I was a little kid reading this. And what he was basically describing was a Saturday afternoon matinee horror movie that was being presented for a bunch of kids having fun, while the movie that was being screened was Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead is not a particularly child-appropriate Saturday afternoon matinee scarathon, right? Because it pretty quickly goes from um, from a graveyard scene that's probably appropriate to human beings eating other human beings. Um, and so what he describes in very vivid language is this thing kind of starting out as a lot of fun for the kids, and then the kids start getting quiet, and then they start screaming. And so it becomes this thing. So... Without And I don't think Roger Ebert had, now my little mind had already figured out that people were going to be really weird about horror films because I watched a lot of horror films. And, and Ebert's commentary struck me as this kind of like criticism of horror as if it's like just not appropriate and kind of the suggestion we need to really protect people from this stuff. Now, maybe my parents were making mistakes and I should have been protected from it. And then so then a long time passes and a long time later, I started finding out a little bit about the background of the funding that was connected with the the company that owns Reader's Digest. And they have a fairly conservative political agenda that was really very consistent with the way that they kind of represent culture in their pages. All of which is to suggest that when we're looking at the pages of magazines, whether it's Family Fun or Eat This Not That or Time Magazine, you know, one, it's important to be very conscious of what are the motivations of the people putting it together. Yeah, I have a question. When is the last time that you read a Time Magazine? I, you mean read any content from it or sat down with a hard copy? I, 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 either one. Either one. Um, gosh, I don't, I, I don't think I could remember. I know I have seen Time show up on my Twitter feed. Yeah. So they've been around. I checked. Uh, so I actually, I actually was a subscriber to Time until 2015. And I actually enjoyed, enjoyed reading Time. But it really wasn't, the, I think, the hard-hitting. Uh, they certainly haven't broke any large news stories in, in uh, quite some time. Um, and I, I looked up when was the last time that I have shared a Time article. And actually, the last last tweet reference that I have to Time was in 2015 when I took a picture of um, two back-to-back issues. One was a, um, a cover that was called The Clinton Way, and the other one was uh, a cover that had the Bush identity. And this was sort of the conversation that Time was having in March of 2015, uh-huh. you know, was this recreation of, of, of Bush versus Clinton in which my, you know, my loathing was, oh, no, like, like we're just like reliving history all over again. And boy, w- would I love to have seen <laughs> 2016 actually play out as Bush versus Clinton. Uh, but unfortunately, we didn't get that as well. Well, we um, did. They, they did get in the news in the really recent past. Do you recall this? Because no, um, our 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 our, uh, our fearless leader 
was suggesting that he had actually been contacted by Time to possibly oh, be yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah. man of the year. That's right. But then he thought the interview and the photograph was all just too much of an inconvenience. So he said, no, thank you. And then, of course, the people from Time Magazine, who are still owned by their, their current ownership, said, nah, that didn't happen. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um, and then, uh, kind and, of a weird ending. Well, and I, so what I've been reading about uh, since this has happened is sort of what's the reaction been like from uh, the writers at time. And it, I, I hear two different uh, sentiments coming out of it. One is it feels very funeral like, you know, like this is a this has been a long downward trajectory of what we've seen within Time magazine. Um, the other one is downright anger. And, it, and from what I've read, there's been some of these um, forums in which they brought in all the writers and, they, and then they talked to them. And there were some pretty angry comments. I mean, you know, the writers were, were very, uh, you know, frank about this uh, to to their fearless leaders who just, you know, sold it out from under them. You know, how is this going to affect um, editorial content? Uh, what is the role in which the Koch brothers would play? And where do we go from here? Because there are some theories out there that, you know, how long is Meredith Corporation going to hold on to these titles? It's because they can they could very likely end up selling Sports Illustrated to ESPN, uh, selling time straight to the Koch brothers. You know, there's, there's a lot of theories floating out there of what's the long term value of these specific uh, brands to Meredith Corporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, time is one of the older you know, mainstream news magazine brands in existence. And I was a subscriber for a long time, quite a while ago. And uh, it's just interesting to see how they've kind of transformed. I, the, the thing that I think about when Time Magazine comes up was their slogan for such a long time, read time and understand. And the idea was that they were trying to sell kind of their long form depth idea. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, one, uh, I have, uh, I just have a, a sort of love and affection for 1960s uh, era New York culture in general. I'm a huge fan of Mad Men for the reason of the aesthetic that Mad Men brings as well. Um, and uh, kind that's of, part of what makes me a big fan of Mad Magazine, actually, because it's the same, <laughs> it's yeah. the same culture. Yeah, right? <laughs> right. But uh, did you know that Sterling Cooper Draper Price? The ad agency was actually in the Time and Life building in the 1960s. Really? So it's heavily modeled after the culture that was happening uh, at Time. You know, it's got the same uh, Herman Miller furniture aesthetic that's going on in there as well. I'd love mm-hmm. to own a uh, an Eames executive chair, the the Time Life chair that was that was specifically designed for that building and for that company. That's 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 kind of an awesome. See, the other the other piece of historical significance that I connect with Time has to do with their. Uh, um, so, some of their more poorly chosen moments of photo manipulation, mm. like the uh, O.J. Simpson cover, um, which, which you know, at the time was, you know, pretty problematically kind of racist by, you know, kind of making him look much scarier than people thought he should have been at that point. And as it turns out, maybe he should have been. But <laughs> And then also the controversy where they had taken a, there was a, this is a little bit more serious, but an American soldier who'd been... Uh, was uh, dragged through the um, dragged through the streets and then captured and um, had been dragged to the point where his uniform had fallen off and so they actually had photoshopped in a certain kind of propriety into his clothing but the the problem with that it's completely understandable impulse but the problem is that then the photograph is not not authentic any longer 
And so there was a big kind of controversy about that, about the way that they were reproducing that material. So, but again, you know, we are, we're in an era where the, that, that kind of thing is, um, is interestingly under a lot of attention. So, um, so we'll, we'll just have to be really smart, hopefully media literate consumers, and watch what, uh, how Time Magazine changes over time. When I think in February is when this is supposed to happen. Yes. Yeah, and that's an interesting point about media manipulation, uh, I think, which is a good segue to talking about what we saw the Washington Post publish over the weekend as well, um, which is this story about Project Veritas, uh, headquartered out of New York. And, and the story is that a woman had approached Washington Post with some uh, allegations towards uh, uh, Republican nominee for Senate from Alabama, Roy Moore. And her story was that Roy Moore had impregnated her uh, and sort of forced her into an abortion. She uh, has never come publicly out of this, but she wants to uh, finally come forward. And the, the story that Washington Post ends up running is that this is actually completely 100% fabricated uh, uh, information and that the lady that is doing this undercover is actually working for Project Veritas in New York, um, which has connections to James O'Keefe as well, which is sort of a a, uh, a company that is bent on um, trying to out the liberal media, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to create... Uh, trying to really create fake news, then and then basically have gotcha moments, right? And um, so, you know, th- this was exposed. I think there's really two interesting effects that come out of this. Um, one that I think is the most important is that it drew attention to how the Washington Post and other organizations actually verify a story. So. You know, you've got a woman who's making claims. This seems really attractive as a news story. So how do you make sure you're not getting set up, right? And, of course, their normal journalistic procedure that most people, you know, when they think a little bit about how journalism works, and there are some exceptions in journalism being as complex as it is, of course, but mainstream journalism, i.e. the Washington Post, will find ways of verifying someone's story even if the story doesn't have necessarily any of what we think of as physical evidence or, you know, there isn't a picture of it happening usually or something like that. But they'll go and try to corroborate someone's story. Um, And so the fact that this story wouldn't stand up under corroboration, that basically as the woman who from the Post who was being contacted um, was trying to follow up, there was nothing to support the story. And so then, uh, but what they did find uh, in looking there was, uh, I think it was a GoFundMe page, right? Right. That that basically She's was. A, I'm moving to New York to work for a conservative news agency that tries to out. Right. The the liberal mainstream media. <laughs> right. So she basically outed herself as a, um, as a as a, a, a you know as somebody who's going to be spying. Now the other interesting follow up yesterday what, that I heard. Um, was from somebody who was connected with the Young Turks, which is a really interesting media organization, and I'll be the first to admit they are an incredibly progressively centered media organization, um, but they they have actually very interesting commentaries. And there was one that appeared yesterday where somebody was identifying this self-congratulatory moment where there were these people who had uh, outed the false report, which meant paying more attention to O'Keefe and showing him for kind of the misrepresenter that he was. 
Um, but but in this Young Turks piece, the, the spokesperson was talking about how the Washington Post and the New York Times and other organizations had actually allowed, I don't know if they called it Project Veritas at the time, but when they were going after ACORN, uh, that they allowed basically a certain enough credibility in the stories that were coming out to basically undermine what ACORN was doing. ACORN was doing, was working with the poor community. They were doing voting drives. And uh, O'Keefe had done an enormous amount of videotape and then an enormous amount of manipulation of the videotape to try to show that they were doing all sorts of, of unethical things. Um, and then, and including going to speak to them dressed up as pimps and prostitutes. So then they end up appearing on Fox News in pimp and prostitute costumes, which were not actually how they dressed but kind of a, a, a metaphorical exaggeration of how they dressed when they approached the people at Acorn to try to find out, to, you know, to essentially try to set them up to say something uh, bad. So it was basically, it was a false story. Uh, there wasn't enough in the mainstream media to expose how false the story was, so it, it destroyed Acorn. Acorn's no longer in existence as a result of that. Um, and so the, the, the lack of scrutiny that happened at that time makes this kind of self-congratulatory, oh, now we found them a little bit more problematic. Hopefully that continues to happen. Hopefully the kind of journalistic standards that were connected to all of the first Roy Moore reports continues, and uh, and hopefully it gets discussed in a way that makes the, the, the public who's being exposed to this information more aware of how, it's get, how it gets done, both how a mainstream news organization verifies what they're going to report and how some of these sort of newer more aggressive, more politically um, motivated organizations do their work. Um, so that Project Veritas or the Young Turks or whoever it is that you're looking at, the important thing is to ask questions about how do they know this, how are they demonstrating this, and looking at other sources to see if there's any verification of it. Right, and I think there's there's something else to here to be said about sort of the destruction of the, the free press, or at least the attempted destruction of the free press, too. This is something that we've actually seen tactics that have been done um, by the Russians uh, for decades now. And, and what we're, starting, we're, we're seeing this on multiple levels play out, I would say, from top leadership down on trying to discredit um, the free press, which, you know, granted, might discredit itself or uh, implode uh, before before we get there uh, with with all of the news that we've been seeing recently uh, with sexual allegations itself, you know, should the, should the media continue to exist, uh, you know, maybe maybe then it can be discredited. Um, I woke up this morning to a notification on my phone uh, that Apple had pushed out that Matt Lauer had been fired from NBC, uh, the latest to have sexual allegations. What's interesting about um, the Matt Lauer story is this feels like uh, one of the first in which it wasn't a news story that broke it. It was the company itself. The, you know, NBC was who was who came out and said, um, you know, there has been an employee who has, um, give, you know, said that the, there's been sexual advances from Matt Lauer. They gave actually very, very little information um, but basically said this is the only one that's come in you know the 20 years that Matt Lauer has been here, but we have uh, fired him and removed him. And um, what was interesting to watch play out this morning was the uh, talent on the Today Show was told, you know, basically when they woke up as well. And so they are they are doing this live show in the morning. And so you you get to watch these live reactions play out from the people that Matt worked with as well. 
Um, what's been, uh, what, what, you know, we, we're still really early in this story. We haven't learned a lot about it. Um, what, what have been your takeaways so far? Um, that the, the, you know, again, the sort of the idea that, you know, think about the people who are in media and think about what are the consequences? What do you, you know, how, how had that, how has that kind of, because there must be more going on behind the scenes that we don't know about that made the organization make such a definite quick decision. Um, and, uh, it, it will be interesting as the, you know, in the, in the short term future, exactly how accusations unfolded and what the consequences of it were. It's continually interesting to me that there actually are consequences connected to actions just from a gender standpoint. I mean, I think that's a it's a very important thing because I think what it does is tells people who are being subject to this sort of thing. It's important for you to feel that you're going to be believed. Um, because so much of what's happened to people wasn't mentioned because of the assumption that it wouldn't be believed. Um, and that hasn't you know, stopped it from happening. There's a lot of cultural work to do, of course, to address the problem in general. But just the, the dimensions that it reaches um, is kind of incredible. The, you know, what's happening with Conyers also, um, who, uh, who's had some accusations against him and his role in terms of democratic leadership and everything like that is subject to change also. Um, and I think it's, you know, I mean, I think these are really important, uh, an important time to think about what's the, what are the cultural repercussions of having a culture that has this happen. And we haven't, we've gotten even nowhere near close to thinking about, okay, so what does this mean for, um, for kids? Or what does this mean, you know, as, as you were suggesting earlier, what are we going to tell our students? Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that we have to be having a class because the reality is is people in media are put you know particularly when you are the ones in front of the camera you're put in very powerful positions these men have incredible power whether it's matt lauer or charlie rose or bill o'reilly um whoever you want to pick and they are um abusing and exploiting uh, that that power and that privilege that they're given in the media situation, uh, the, their their media um, positions, and so I'm you know I'm I'm thinking about what is the curriculum that our students need to be walking through, and to to do they realize the privilege in which media um, gives them, and how to uh, be respectful with not with only those that they are working with, um, but with you know with, with the position that they're given in as well, uh, and then also again I think what we've talked about is. We are seeing the most powerful um, kind of uh, topple over for this. There's certainly, this is not something that only exists with people with at the highest power. Um, but these are the stories that are cutting through, is the ones, um, you know, that, 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 that they get the most uh, clicks or that, you know, the people that we most recognize them, uh, the most. This doesn't mean that it is isolated to only those people. And there are, you know, lot of victims who are not getting the stories through that are happening at you know your most everyday companies and corporations from people that are likely in the same types of power positions what are, one of the things I thought was interesting early on um, there were um, uh, Asia Argento I don't know if we've talked about her but was suggesting also that a lot of this was happening in the Italian film industry there have been suggestions that there are really high-level uh, examples of exploitation happening to actors in the uh, who are female in the Bollywood industry 
So this isn't, this is, I mean, it's also reaching other places in our culture, but there's a global face to it too, because this is not a, an exclusively American problem. This is happening in a lot of different places. So that's great. And I think what we will do here is um, we will take a break and we're going to bring in a guest. So I imagine that break music is cued. Right. Yes. We are back with a new guest. We have Yvette Walker, who is the Assistant Dean of Student Affairs for the Gaylord College of Journalism and Mass Communication. Uh, Previously, she's been the Night News Director at The Oklahoman and was also the Edith Kinney Gaylord Media Ethics Chair at the University of Central Oklahoma. Yvette, welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. We've been wanting to get the actual fake news here in the room with us. (laughs) So... Whatever that is, uh-huh. there's just a lot of it, and I guess we're all implicated in it. So I suppose. <laughs> Let's try to work that out in this yeah. session. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I think I think we could settle that issue real quickly. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, that's going to be an, an endless kind of thing. What I, I was hoping that we could have a discussion on an article that came out over the weekend, and the article is part of the news, but the conversation that I've seen within media and journalists since this article has gone public has also been interesting to follow. And the article that I'm talking about is uh, titled A Voice of Hate in America's Heartland, and it was written by Richard Fawcett of the New York Times. Um, And it probably could have been titled uh, The Nazi Next Door. You know, it follows a man named Tony Hovater, who lives in Ohio, um, and I, I feel like I have to read the lead of this, so you can, you can kind of hear how much they come after this guy. Um, it starts off like this. Tony and Maria Hovater were married this fall. They registered at Target, and on their list was a muffin pan, a four-door dresser, and a pineapple slicer. <laughs> And this is sort of the tone of this article, which is basically like, um, yeah, he's got, you know, these uh, these uh, uh, these right wing. uh, He's involved with Nazis. uh, He has marched in Charlottesville. But, you know, he also buys groceries. He's just like you and me. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And uh, but he's also, you know, as a Nazi sympathizer. And what we saw afterwards was. Um, people saying you're normalizing Nazis. Uh, he, Richard wrote a follow-up in which he said, um, I, let me see if I can find it in my notes. He said something like, oh, here it is. He says, there's a hole at, uh, there's a hole at, at the heart of my story about Tony Hayvater, the, the, the white nationalist and Nazi sympathizer. And basically what he comes to the conclusion was, was I, you know, I wanted to figure it out, but I just couldn't figure out exactly where these these feelings must have come from. He didn't like, give me a lot of information, but yet we went we went ahead and ran with it anyways. And since then, the New York Times has also kind of continued to defend this stance uh, as well. And I'm curious to think about what is at what point is something newsworthy, and what what point is a story probably not worth following? Let's start there. Well, I think everyone wants to know why these people have the feelings that they do, as you said. Before, and the whole idea of normalizing, before people were not coming forward to, 
with you know very so publicly with their feelings and you can argue that the rallies for the Trump administration did that or not but i think that people are now seeing more people being comfortable to come forward with their varying opinions and people want to know about these people like why do you feel this way how can you live in this country and feel this way the problem is if you if it's the media's responsibility to seek truth and find out these things but they don't get it in the interview which apparently didn't happen here do you go forward or do you dig deeper and whether and maybe they maybe they thought that they weren't going to get any more and this was it it's an interesting hook he's the nazi next door he shops at target he buys the same kind of kitchen implements that we all do that's interesting let's run that but you're right i certainly saw on social media a lot of people who were concerned that he was being treated as a very normal person and not someone who should be shunned or who should be um, criticized for his opinions. And you certainly can argue freedom of expression in this country, as long as you're not being violent, you certainly can have those opinions. But the people that I saw on social media that were criticizing this were very concerned that he was being treated like anybody else and he is not anyone else. He's is different. Yeah, and I think that there, another piece of this is we see this in media a lot. Uh, we certainly see it after mass shootings. We see it uh, after terrorist attacks, and that is that we're trying to figure out the why. What was the motive behind this? And that's a very complex issue because this this isn't a, a product of one thing happening that leads to this. This is a product of uh, a systemic in um, and and uh, systemic societal issues that have happened over a long history of time. Right. It's, it's not like uh, you know one event happened that he saw on social media, and now because of that, his views have 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 tilted to an extremist level. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, if indeed the article was trying to show how a very normal person next door can become a Nazi. In, in the ways that you were talking about, uh, these these very nuanced levels, um, people being dissatisfied with something, um, maybe maybe someone loses a job, maybe you know these varying levels of things that happen to a person that may lead them to this particular point of view. I don't know if the story was successful in doing that, but if that's the goal, then I can see how you can show normal person, boy next door, stuff happened, and now he is a member of ISIS, or now he is a member of the socialist part of the the Nazi party. Mm -hmm. I think one one of the things that I saw toward the beginning of this was a discussion online about the notion of the banality of evil. Mm. And this was, uh, so this is depending on, um, I thought it was interesting to bring it up because the first version of it that I saw, which I think was on a, a tweet somebody posted, was, look, if the point of this article was to try to point out that evil is banal and happens all the time and it's around us and that's why you need to think about you know, um, somebody who has evil thoughts also grocery shopping, that that's nothing new. And I agree with that. It's kind of not a new notion in one way, but I don't know... You know, since there's been so much, this is an, uh, an issue that came up in, in some very smart writing by Hannah Arendt after, uh, in, in thinking about the Eichmann trial and World War II and sort of evil becoming this bureaucratized process. 
you know, whether that's common currency in, in our culture now, whether the idea of that is something that keeps getting taught, that's something that people have an investment in trying to understand that, you know, and, and what do we do with the notion of evil? We want to make it complicated um, because even when looking for why, sometimes the the notion of evil, beca- okay, it's evil or it's crazy and now we don't have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so any, any preceding causes to something, because I think, you know, we don't think necessarily of white supremacists and Nazis as insane. We think that some rational process as much as we might disagree with it, got them there, right? It doesn't qualify over into, oh, that's just crazy. We don't even really need to think hard about that. Um, so I think thinking in a very full way about it and then taking responsibility for how the way you construct this portrait is really important, when, you know, what, it, what it says about how the cultural conversation is going about these. But the other piece of this is, let's talk about it, the way this guy, this guy looks. You know, he's clean-cut guy. He's white guy, young, relatively good looking, um, maybe not the kind of person you would think would be this person, whatever this person is. You know, it's so interesting. I watched a movie last night, Compulsion, uh, which is based on the, tell me, the the trial of the uh, oh, Leopold and Loeb. Leopold and Loeb, yeah. yeah. And here were two rich, and I'm talking about the movie now, not necessarily the, the real events, but two rich clean-cut, relatively attractive young men, and people just could not understand how this could happen. And it was the facade as much as the crazy, I think, that people were wondering about. And I think in this case, certainly the people that I heard that were complaining, was complaining, they were complaining about the fact that he was being treated this way because of what he looked like, because he could you know, be on in any one subdivision because he could just walk down the street and appear to be just a very, you know, normal looking white man in America. And I'll be honest, there were some people that were cons- that were concerned about that who happened to be African-American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I saw a tweet from Jamel Hill from ESPN uh, in which she said, the fascination with disgruntled white America is so disingenuous considering how long people of color have been beneath the boot. I think that's that's an interesting part part about this. Mm-hmm. There, it also reminded me, in a way, of the um, the way that representations of uh, the connection between the way something is represented and how it means things to different communities. That brought me back to thinking about uh, the, the the documentary about Robert McNamara called "The Fog of War," where uh, the filmmaker Earl Morris was attacked for just letting this guy talk, just, you know, letting him go ahead and say his piece about the escalation of the Vietnam War, the the war crimes activity that meant the war going into Laos and Cambodia. Um, and Errol Morris was completely convinced as the author of this documentary that somebody would watch and go, this guy is clearly not thinking rationally about it. And I don't know if maybe, you know, the same assumption was being made that people will see this for what it is. They'll see the the contrast of the banality and the evil and, and be able to sort that out. And they just might not see it from the same perspective because the stuff is being approached from a lot of different perspectives. So you can't, it's very hard to make assumptions about an audience when you overcomplicate the way that you're kind of putting the story together. Mm-hmm. But, there's, but there's another problem, I think, or, or concern I feel strongly, I just told my students this today, that I have to fight for your right to have your opinion, even if I dislike that opinion, 
so that I can have mine. But how far do we go with that? So, you know, he identifies himself as a neo-Nazi. I don't know in his mind how far he goes with that. I know on the surface what that means. I know that probably means that he thinks that I am beneath him, being an African-American woman. But I don't know really if he wants to kill me or just, or just not interact with me. I don't know what that means for this particular man that the New York Times wrote about. Having said that, does he not have his opinion? Does he, does he not have freedom of expression? And that's a very tricky thing because you cannot deny freedom of expression if you want yours to remain. And so, I mean, it's tough. I, I'm originally from Chicago. I remember times when there were quite a few rallies in Skokie, which is a suburb of Chicago, and at that time predominantly Jewish, um, by Klan members and neo-Nazi. Um, they had the right paper. Actually, the right papers, that's pretty bad. They, <laughs> they, they had filled out the correct, uh, um, the, the correct municipal permits to have their rally, and yes, they could do it. Did, did people like it? No. You've seen the Blues Brothers. <laughs> um, but, but did they have the right to do it? Yes. So, I mean, I struggle with that all the time. There's lots of opinions um, that have been, I will say, normalized, or at least, least who opinions belonging to people who feel like they can come out and say it publicly in this current climate that perhaps they did not say publicly before. I don't like that. Do they have the right to say it as long as it's not violent? do yeah that's i mean i think that's a struggle that has to happen that's a discussion that has to happen in a very public way and hopefully it's the kind of thing that would incline us more toward being more deliberative than maybe we are about some of these issues is it social media though that um allows people to feel so comfortable in coming out with lots of different opinions i mean it's certainly social media in the way we have it today well Uh, yeah or at least the ability to be anonymous Maybe, you know, where you can voice opinions without necessarily having it connected to yourself as a responsible individual. No, I'd say there's plenty of people who are very comfortable coming out as as themselves. I mean, yes, you, you can create a fake Facebook account, and but I, I think there are a lot of people who, for whatever reason, are very comfortable saying, speaking their mind and, and saying what they what they feel. Even when a bit of happy news comes out in the last news cycle, that's Prince Harry and Meghan Mark- Markle are now engaged and are going to get married. She's biracial, and people have already started saying some nasty things um, about her, and they're saying it publicly. I, you know, it's interesting. I don't think people feel like they need to hide anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and even more so, there are communities that specifically crop up that are for them, and I think that is part of the story in which we saw um, within this New York Times piece was uh, that he is involved in online communities like 4chan. There's you know Facebook groups that he's involved with, and he does sort of pass around some of this um, neo-Nazi uh, material uh, very publicly on his Facebook page and Instagram page, and he kind of f- finds a lot of humor in it as well, which you know is disgusting. And I, I think that is a piece as we end up the the profile that's done, you know, which feels almost like a celebrity profile is like, you know, here we are sitting at Panera Bread eating a turkey sandwich. Um, But the other side of it is there is this digital space in which he also can exist um, and and prey on people uh, and and really push some really, uh, you know, visceral negative uh, content as well. 
Do you think that this particular article makes him seem uh, appealing in some way so that another young person might see him and want to be like him? I don't know if this necessarily, the one that does remind me is, I think it was, I'm, I don't want to get this wrong, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, I think it was a political piece that came out at the beginning of the year that was called The Alt-Right Comes to Washington. Um, and that one really did portray uh, these these young men, you know, talked about how, um, you know, well, they're, they're dressed really well and their their hair's, you know, cut this specific way and they're wearing suits and they're, you know, good looking fellers. And, I, and that was a story in which I thought was, wow, like they're, they are trying to project this and, and who cares how they look if, you know, if what, what's underneath them uh, is, is so dark and the things that they are, that they are projecting and spewing out. Um, but I do, I do see that the, the media can sometimes do that. Um, I've joked about before that my wife and I used to watch Dateline, uh, which is basically, uh, rich white people crime, you know, which is like, uh, you know, this couple living next door, you'd never think that there was anything wrong with him. And then he killed his wife, you know, <laughs> and then there's a bunch of interviews of like, there was nothing wrong with him you know? <laughs> every single time. Um, and I think I think we do that a lot where it's like, well, you wouldn't believe it because they have this social status. Um, but but in reality, like like this type of nature can exist across any spectrum of uh, you know the socioeconomic culture. Yeah, well, there's also the that class component of who does you know the people who do killings used to work at meat processing plants and they walk around with chainsaws and it's pretty obvious who they are, right? <laughs> you can just tell for oh look, there's a guy over there who's probably killed 34 people. I think I'll stay away from him. You know, it's just going to be that easy to identify it. But it's you know that that relationship between the external and the internal that makes it all kind of more complicated and more interesting. And looks are important, especially in the media, right? I mean, the Rolling Stone got uh, magazine got uh, criticized when shortly after the Boston bombings, uh, featuring uh, one of the bombers who died on the cover. Uh, I'm not going to say his name correctly, but Jokar Sarnayev. 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 I knew I was going to butcher it. Uh, don't worry about cleaning that up. <laughs> <laughs> but on this cover, he was an attractive young man. He kind of had longish, shaggy hair, and people were saying he even looked like a rock star. This is, you know, the man along with his with his brother who um, is said to have killed and, and maimed all these people. And here he is on the cover of Rolling Stone. Now, the article itself was very interesting, but we're talking about the image. We're talking about the look. We're talking about his look. And he looked like an attractive rock star, you know, young man on the cover of Rolling Stone. And well, was the, that was that right? Yeah, I mean, partially. And also, I think, just thinking about the context of rock stars, thinking about how because I've always been on this now, watch, the person you like is going to turn out to be oh my accused goodness. of things. Yeah. But, you know, you think about what the image of a rock star is. It's not nice, you know? It's, it's <laughs> like Keith Richards, not <laughs> nice. It's, 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 it's bad boys and mm -hmm. uh, bad girls and, and people who are, you know, kind of given license to play at the fringes, and that becomes part of our kind of fantasy enjoyment of the idea of it. So it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's very culturally complex when, when those kind of images go up. And 
you know, I just always hope that we move toward a position where our culture is able to have more complex conversations about really challenging ideas like, you know, visual representation and how to learn to be skeptical of what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Let's, I, I want to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier, Yvette, which is the engagement of Prince Harry and Princess Meghan, because I think this sort of ties into uh, this, this conversation as well. I, I don't want to upset you, but she can't be called princess. Yeah, that won't happen. <laughs> Because uh, she's not royal blood, mm-hmm. okay. so neither can Kate. Apparently, I'm I'm but, learning. But she will be. There's some. There's something because she is married to the prince. There's some title that she will have, but I don't really remember what it is right now. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm looking <laughs> up on the because I was just looking at a BBC story about this about why she can't be called princess. Um, Her royal highness um, is what. So that's that's kind of the formal right. title. Right. HRH. Princess Meg. And it's interesting yeah. because she's, you know, she's an L.A. girl, uh, an actress on a, I don't want to make anyone mad. I never watched Suits, so I'm not really familiar with the show. But isn't it on USA? It is on USA. USA. Somebody, somebody so, I mean, must you know, watch this show. So I, I don't know. I that. watched, I think, a season and a half of it. But it's on like season eight. I don't know yeah. how. I mean, I, I, it's still again, around. Not trying to make anybody mad. Like I'm not familiar with it. Baby or but, like you know, but, but it's not... It's not This Is Us. Let's just say that. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, here she is, and she's an L.A. girl, and she's on a, you know, popular, semi-popular, I guess you could say, cable network drama. Certainly something that the royal family probably was not looking for. But um, I say kudos, Prince Harry. You found your love, and that is good. All right. So we're <laughs> shipping Harry and Meghan. Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting because when it was announced, um, she is biracial. Her father is white and her mother is black. And she is very open about that. A lot of videos and uh, pieces that she have, she's written uh, have come to light now where she has talked about it openly. Uh, there's one piece where she talks about going to school and is being forced to, uh, to self-identify. And she refuses to because she, she, could, she could just imagine her mother seeing her check white and crying or her father seeing her check black and crying. So she said nothing. She comes home and tells the father about it, and he says, you draw your own box, honey. So she's very open about that. However, when this comes out, uh, many in the black community, on social media anyway, um, was super excited and was embracing her as our black sister and our black princess and how it was really, really great. And then there were several people who said, well, she's not black, she's biracial, and you can't, you know, you can't claim her. I mean, it just got, it got to look a little ridiculous at that point, you know? <laughs> but here we have a group of people who were interested because they wanted to claim her because she has, you know, she has some melanin in her. And then we have another group of people who are going to say nasty things about her because of what she looks like. It's, yeah. it's, it's a ridiculous world we live in. It is. I'm happy because they found love. Uh-huh. I, well, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, I'm excited because it might make for a better conversation about, you know, how we, how we think about this thing of, of race or ethnicity and mm-hmm. how much of it is real and how much of it we've just made up and accepted as real and have learned, you know, all along that that's just sort of how people make sense out of the world and then kind of take the moment to go, yeah, but, you know, it's just not a real thing. It's but it not, will be interesting. People yeah. are going to look at people are going to look at all the wedding arrangements that are made. Someone's going to ask the question: Is she going to jump the broom? Someone's <laughs> going to ask that question. Not me, but someone's going to ask that question. <laughs> Which is, uh, 
you know, an, an, Afri- an African uh, custom uh-huh. in some, not all African countries, but in some African countries and, and African-Americans uh, sometimes will choose to do that. So, so I do not believe she's going to jump the broom, but someone is going to ask that question. So you're suggesting that Elizabeth too never jumped the broom. I'm suggesting that she did not. <laughs> well, may we all find love in any shape, size, or color. Absolutely. Uh, Yvette, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank and you. And thank you for joining us at the end of the world. Thank you. <laughs>